John chapter 17, verses 1 through 5 and 20 through 24. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had before the world existed. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe in you, that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you have sent me, and love them, even as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me, because you loved me before the foundation of the world. The word of the Lord. Thank you for joining us for our worship service today. Whether you're at home or here in our sanctuary, we are really grateful to have you with us. We are actually recording today's message a bit early this week. I had some medical tests this week, and while I don't think it's anything serious at all, it did seem advisable to minimize coughing and to uh, record the message in advance of Sunday morning. So this part is being done a little bit before Sunday. I look forward to being back with you in person very soon. We're continuing our study today on the glory of God. If you've been with us the past couple of weeks, you know that we have said the Hebrew word translated glory in the Old Testament is the word kabod, which means heavy, weighty, or of substance. A word definition doesn't really tell us all about the meaning of that word. However, it looks, uh, it's more important to see how it's actually used in Scripture. For example, the word glory in Exodus 33 and verse 18 seems to refer to a visible manifestation of God's goodness. Moses says to God in Exodus 33:18, Lord, show me your glory. And God says in response to Moses, I will cause all my goodness to pass before you. From that verse, I think we can understand that the glory of God is a visible manifestation of his goodness. Elsewhere in the Old Testament, we see God's presence, God's glory being manifest as fire, as clouds, like the, the fire that came down on the temple and the cloud that filled the temple at uh, Solomon's great prayer of dedication of the temple. One of the beautiful Old Testament references to glory is found in the book of Ezekiel, chapter 1 and verse 28, where we read these words, like the appearance of of the bow that is in the cloud on the day of rain, so was the appearance of the brightness all around. Such was the appearance of the lightness of the glory of the Lord. And Ezekiel says, and I saw it when I saw it, I fell on my face. So when we put these passages together, we can see that glory has to do with the beauty, the brightness, the goodness, the purity, and the perfection of God's holy 
presence. We could think of glory as it's used in scripture as God's presence on display, a visible manifestation of his presence. I think it's worth noting that those in scripture who encountered God's glory were changed by it. Moses, King David, uh, the Apostle Paul, the Apostle Peter, they had encounters with the glory of God and as a result, they sought God's presence and they thought, sought God's glory increasingly throughout life. Now today, I'd like to look at what Jesus said about glory, about the glory of God. And in light of what <clears throat> Jesus has done for us on his death on the cross and his resurrection from the grave, how we can live in response to the glory of God, that is how we can glorify God. First of all, what do we see about Jesus and uh, his own expression of the glory of God, teaching about the glory of God? A good place to look at that is John chapter 17. And here we see that Jesus, the Son of God, existed in perfect glory before the world existed. This passage in John 17 is the longest recorded prayer of Jesus in Scripture. And in verse 5 of the prayer, Jesus says, And now, Father, Glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Jesus existed before the creation of the world. He is the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, the Son of God, one with the Father, one with the Holy Spirit, existing before the world. And we see Jesus here longing for that glory in which he existed before the world even existed. In verse 24 of John 17, Jesus says, Father, I desire that they also, whom you've given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you've given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. And here we see Jesus not only longing for that return to glory, but his desire to share that glory with his followers. So Jesus existed in perfect glory before the world existed. We see further in the Gospel of John that a measure of Jesus' glory was seen when he came to earth. And this is seen in one of the more familiar verses in the Gospel of John. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, or we have seen his glory. The glory is of the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, what does John mean when he says we've seen his glory? He does not mean we've seen the full expression of the glory of God, but I think he means that in a measure they had witnessed the very glory of God in the life of this man, Jesus, some degree of his glory. But his glory was veiled in human flesh. I think of the well-known Christmas song that uh, we sing, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, And I think a few of the lines go like this, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity, pleased as man with men to dwell, Jesus, our Emmanuel. Jesus' glory was indeed veiled in his fleshly body, though John says we have seen that in his grace and truth. Furthermore, In the Gospel of John, we see that Jesus perfectly glorified God the Father in his ministry on earth. Now Jesus is teaching us about how God is glorified through our lives when he says, 
I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Jesus is our Savior. He gave his life on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins. He was raised from the dead to give us eternal life. He alone is the way of salvation through our faith in him. But Jesus is also our example. He is our model. Our lives are as much as possible to grow in being patterned after his. And Jesus gives us an, an important uh, teaching here, I think, in his own example <clears throat> about glorying, glorifying God. I've accomplished the work that you gave me to do. One of the ways that you and I glorify God in our lives is by fulfilling the mission that he gives to each one of us. And he does give each of us a specific calling, gifting, purpose to fulfill in life. Well, what does it mean then that we actually glorify God? It doesn't mean that we add to his glory. His glory is full and complete. We can't really add to it. But we can reflect his glory to others and point others to him. Some of you have participated in a journey group in our church. And if you have, you studied a little booklet by Randy Pope called The Answer. And in that little booklet, Randy Pope defines glory as satisfaction. And um, he notes in his booklet, we receive glory as we give glory to the God of glory. In other words, the most satisfying thing you can do in life is give glory to the God of glory. That is to glorify him. Jesus perfectly glorified God, and he is our model, our example. When we glorify God, we actually experience his glory to a degree by the presence of the Holy Spirit working in us. And as we'll see in a few minutes, the Holy Spirit is actually called in Scripture the Spirit of glory. One more thing to note, though, in John chapter 17. Jesus now shares his glory with his people so that we can glorify him here in this life in the world. In John 17 and verse 10, Jesus, and he's still praying to the Father when he says, all mine are yours and yours are mine and I am glorified in them. He goes on to say in verses 22 through 23 of this great prayer, the glory that you've given me, I've given them that they may be one even as we are one. I and them and you and me that they may become perfectly one so the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. Jesus is saying, the glory, Father, you've given me, I've given to them. What does he mean by that? I think he's referring to the gift of the Holy Spirit, whom we'll see in a minute as we read what Peter said, is called the Spirit of glory. And it is by the work of the Holy Spirit in us that we are enabled to actually participate in the work of of glorifying God, pointing others to him. And when we, we do that, I think we experience the ultimate satisfaction and joy in this life. Now, in the rest of our time today, I'd like to take a few minutes and talk about practically how we can do that, how you and I can actually glorify God in our lives on earth. I'd like to take, talk about three ways that we can do that. The first one is this, we glorify God by the way we live before a watching world. Jesus said 
to his followers, you're the light of the world. Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. In other words, as Christians, we live before others in such a way that when they see our lives, it can cause them to glorify God by coming to know him to a large degree. Peter in 1 Peter chapter 2 says it this way, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. And when Peter uses the word Gentiles, he is referring, I think, to the unbelieving world. Keep your conduct among the unbelieving world honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may persecute you for your faith. They may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. I think the day of visitation is a reference to the day of Jesus' return. In other words, live in such a way before the unbelieving world that they see your good deeds and it causes them to come to know the God of glory. They can know him too. So that when Jesus returns, they can glorify God as you do. The way we live, in other words, should point other people to God so they too can know him and glorify him. I think one of the greatest needs in our country, the United States right now, is for those who have a relationship, uh, those without a relationship with Jesus, to see the fruit in the lives of genuine Christians who do have a relationship with Jesus. Because there are so very many counterfeits out there. I don't know whether you saw this video last week. I was shocked when I saw it, but um, I was watching a, a newscast about uh, the folks who stormed the Capitol, and there was some film of a few folks who actually got in the, the uh, inside the main uh, Capitol building, and um, the film was filled with, you know, bleeping out words of profanity and so forth, but a few folks got up behind the podium there, and three or four stood there, and one guy seemed to be, and this is one of the people who'd, who'd stormed into the Capitol, seemed to be praying and stood behind this podium and said, we thank you that we're here. And then he used the name of Christ. And I thought, oh my goodness, this guy's thanking God? They were able to storm in there and take over like that? And he's praying in the name of Christ? What kind of a witness is this before the world who does not know the difference between a genuine Christian and a counterfeit? Satan is very skilled at painting a distorted public image of Christians. Not all people who take the name of Christ are Christians. I'd say the same thing about people who uh, burn and loot and destroy buildings and claim his name. Not all people who take the name of Christ are Christ followers. Now, I want to say this to you, and I don't say it to in any way, I don't think, brag about our church or flatter our church. But I got to tell you, as I was thinking about the, this this week, I'm so grateful for the people of our, our church at River Oaks, because I know that we have at River Oaks people on both sides of the political aisle. But what I see in your lives um, to the very great degree 
is that Jesus Christ is first. God's kingdom is first. We can be one and we can love each other in our church while holding some differing views on some political issues and things as minor as wearing masks. And I really, really, really appreciate um, that about you, our church. And I do think to a significant degree um, that many of you are living out Matthew 5:16 before the loss, the needy, the hurting, and people are seeing your good works and giving glory to God. My prayer for our country is that our country at large could see Christians doing that. In fact, I'm just going to stop right now and ask you to join me in praying for that to happen in 2021. Would you join me? Father, we come in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we confess that we have not so lived before you as we ought to have. But we ask that you would so empower us by the Holy Spirit, the spirit of glory, that in the days and months ahead, we would fully live before you in such a way that others would see our good works and give glory to our Father in heaven. Let your love prevail in our lives. And I pray that people would see such love among us in our church that they would know that we are genuinely your disciples and they would be drawn to know you too. And we ask this in the holy name of Jesus. Amen. How do we glorify God? Number one, by the way we live before a watching world. Number two, by the choices we make. The verse you see before you, 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 31, is, I think, one of the most important guiding principles for any follower of Jesus. So whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. This is a verse to memorize, by the way. If you don't know this one, I, I recommend it. Short, simple to memorize. Whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all the glory of God. Now, it is important to understand the context in which this verse comes. So I'll try to share a bit of that very, very briefly. It's found in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, a block of teaching in verses 23 to 33. And here's what's happening there. Verse 23 begins in quotation marks. The Apostle Paul writes, all things are lawful. It's in quotation marks because that was a slogan amongst the Corinthians. All things are lawful. I'm free to do anything. So Paul says in quotes, all things are lawful. He adds, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful. He adds, but not all things build up. And then he gives the Corinthians this principle. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. In other words, you say everything's lawful. You're free, you're free to do anything you want to do. I'm telling you, a higher law is not to seek your own good, but the good of your neighbor. And that is what this chapter is all about. Paul goes in then to address an issue which was culturally relevant for them in their day. And uh, not so much for us, but we can take the timeless principle out of it and apply it to our day. The next verse reads, Eat whatever's sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. In Corinth, in Paul's day, there were many temples devoted to the worship of idols. In these temples, 
meat was offered in sacrifice to the idols. Afterwards, rather than throwing it away, it would be taken outside and hung up in a meat market and sold. There was a debate amongst Christians as to whether you could eat meat that had been offered in sacrifice to an idol. And it seems that Paul is saying, yeah, believer, you know Jesus Christ, you've experienced his salvation, eat whatever sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience for, and he quotes Psalm 24 verse 1, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. So, Paul doesn't stop there, though. He adds, if one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you're disposed to go, eat whatever's set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. In other words, unbeliever invites you, yeah, you can eat the meat that's been offered in sacrifice to an idol. But now, here's the issue Paul raises. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience, not your conscience, but his. So here's what Paul is saying. If there's someone, unbeliever, believer, who maybe doesn't have the same views as you, who's really going to be offended by your eating this meat that was offered in sacrifice to idol and sold in the meat market, don't wound that person's conscience. Give up your liberty, your freedom, your right to eat that meat, at that point in time, at that meal, for the sake of the other person. In other words, he gets back to, goes back to the principle of verse 24, let no one seek his good, but everyone the good of his neighbor. <clears throat> now, let's apply it to our time. Let's just take the timeless principle here for just a moment. Uh, Paul is telling us that while we have great liberty in life about what we do and don't do as long as it's biblically allowed. Our choices should not harm our neighbor. We should not be giving offense to our neighbor. We should let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Say, for example, <clears throat> you know that your neighbor is an alcoholic who is struggling mightily with alcohol. Well, it wouldn't be a good idea for you to invite him to dinner, and serve him wine. You may say, well, I've got liberty about that. I'm okay with that. Yeah, but Paul's saying, think about your neighbor. Let no one seek his good, but the good of his neighbor. And it is with this background and this context that Paul draws it to a close with our key verse here. And I think it's one you can apply to many of the choices you make in life. Whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. He goes on to say, give no offense to Jews or Greeks or the church of God. Just as I try to please everyone and everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but the advantage of many that they may be saved. Paul is saying there's a higher law than doing what you want to do. And it's glorifying God in what you do so that others will be drawn to him. Don't cause an unnecessary offense that would be a stumbling block in their own journey of faith. So again, key verse, the choices you make, whether you eat, drink, whatever you do, do glory, do all for the glory of God. You can apply that to many different um, 
choices you have to make in life. Can I do this for the glory of God? Can I buy this for the glory of God? Can I go here for the glory of God? How do we glorify God? By the way we live before a watching world, by the choices we make, and then I'll close with this. By the perseverance of faith through trials. Peter, who was with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration, we studied about that last week, when he saw the fullness of God's glory shining out in the face of Jesus, not veiled in flesh. He was changed by it, and he wrote quite a lot about the glory of God in the letter of 1 Peter. And he also writes a lot about trials, and there's a lot of connection in the book of 1 Peter between glory and trials. Chapter 1, he writes, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found a result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Here's what Peter's saying. It's as if your faith is a commodity like gold, and it's tested. It is being purified. It is being refined by fire, the fire of these trials. But yet in this purifying process, it results in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And I think that is when he, he returns. Peter goes on to say, though you haven't seen him, you don't see him now, you love him. Though you don't see him now, you believe in him and you rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. In other words, you can experience a degree of his glory now through your faith in him as the Holy Spirit fills you with his presence and his joy. Peter says more in chapter 4 of his letter when he writes, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. I don't know if you've ever had that response when you go through something hard. I certainly have. Why, why, Lord, is this happening to me? Peter says, don't be surprised. It's part of life. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's suffering, that you may also be glad when his glory is revealed. There is a way in which our suffering in this life can increase our anticipation of the glory of God that we will experience beyond this life. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Here I think Peter is saying that the Holy Spirit is the spirit of glory. And when you're suffering for Jesus' sake, and he, he stresses that, he says, let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief. Um, suffering for our own sin or wrongdoing does not qualify for this. But suffering for the sake of Christ in his will, the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. There is an anointing, an enabling, a grace of the Holy Spirit that rests upon you when you persevere in your faith through the difficulties of this life with faith in Jesus. And so he ends it. If anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. In other words, let the Holy Spirit help you persevere 
in trials. He is the spirit of glory. And not only is there glory ahead in eternity for you, but here and now in this life, you can experience the glory of God through the person and the presence of the Holy Spirit. And you can glorify God by standing strong in faith and persevering in trusting the Lord in the difficulties that you face and go through. For the believer, the suffering we experience in this life is always temporary because ultimately our home is in heaven. Our citizenship is in heaven. Peter will go on to say in 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 10 that God has prepared us for eternal glory. <clears throat> Excuse me. And after you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace who's called you to his eternal glory will himself restore, confirm, establish, strengthen, and establish you. So, how can we glorify God as Jesus has called us to do, and as he has by giving us the Holy Spirit provided for us to do? Number one, by the way, we live before a watching world. Number two, by the choices we make, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And number three, by persevering in faith through our trials. Let's pray about that now. Father, we pray for the spirit of glory to rest upon us, <clears throat> to enable us to better glorify you in everything we face in this life. May you be glorified in our lives and in our church, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.